This is Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On October 4, 2019, the Gray Center co-hosted its second annual Administrative Law Symposium with the George Mason Law Review. This year we chose the title, The Administration of Democracy, because we were focused on some of the ways in which administrative agencies are involved in our democratic processes. The day's second panel focused on the administration of elections. We had a paper by Professor Michael Morley on Bush v. Gore, decentralized election administration, and the equal protection right to vote. A paper by election law practitioner Jason Torchinsky on the independence of redistricting commissions and a paper by Professor Richard Pildes of the New York University titled Independent Institutions and the Design of Fair Districting Maps. The conversation was moderated by the Gray Center's Deputy Director, Andrew Kloster. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Well, our second panel this morning is titled The Administration of Elections, and it'll be moderated by the Gray Center's Deputy Director, Andrew Kloster. As many of you know, Andrew joined the Gray Center after serving in the Department of Transportation and the General Counsel's Office on administrative law and regulatory issues. Before that, worked for Judge Mannion on the Seventh Circuit and was a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Andrew? All right. Uh, good morning. So we are so uh, pleased today to have three scholars that have provided us papers for the symposium issue uh, on the subject of election administration. Uh, as you all know, historically, our election administration in this country has been a creature of state and local governments, but increasingly we see federal involvement. Uh, so we are, are pleased to have three papers. I will uh, begin uh, with Professor Morley and I'll introduce them uh, as they get to speak. Uh, so we'll start with uh, Professor Morley, uh, whose paper will be entitled Bush v. Gore, Decentralized Election Administration and the Equal Protection Right to Vote. Uh, Professor Morley is assistant professor at the Florida State University College of Law, where he teaches and writes in the areas of election law, federal courts, remedies, and constitutional law. He previously served, among other positions, as a Clemenco Fellow uh, at, at Harvard Law School. Uh, he was uh, a special assistant to the general counsel of the Army at the Pentagon and a law clerk on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. He uh, has his bachelor's degree from Princeton University and a JD from the Yale Law School. So uh, since we're running a little behind, without further ado, please, Professor Morley. Thank you very much. As Andrew pointed out, election administration has traditionally been a primarily local endeavor, with elections run by county and local officials vested with discretion. Even laws like the Voter Voting Rights Act left this structure largely intact, while the federal government imposed new restrictions and new oversight, especially over covered jurisdiction, primary responsibility for the administration of elections still remained vested with county and local officials. The Supreme Court's 2000 ruling in Bush v. Gore called, this, called into question this structure of decentralized election administration. Now, by way of background to Bush, Originally, the Equal Protection Clause didn't actually apply to voting rights. Now, that strikes some people as surprising, but obviously a prohibition on racial discrimination lies at the heart of the 14th Amendment, and if it protected voting rights, we wouldn't have needed a 15th Amendment. 
It wasn't until the 20th century that the Supreme Court reinterpreted the Equal Protection Clause as protecting voting rights primarily in two main areas. First, equal protection guarantees applied to voter eligibility. The Equal Protection Clause was understood as limiting state power to exclude people from their electorates. And this had an impact at the local level. So the U.S. Supreme Court held that local school districts could not limit voting for school board elections to just parents of children registered there or and uh, local property owners. Equal protection principles were also applied in the context of the one-person, one one-vote cases to ensuring that people's votes received equal weight in the context of the same elections. And so this resulted in the equalization of the size of legislative districts, requiring equalized populations for legislative districts. But Bush, went, Bush v. Gore went far beyond these precedents. It held that the Equal Protection Clause applies not only to the allocation of the vote, not only to the recognition of eligible electors, but to the manner of its exercise, to the manner of the exercise of the right to vote. And the court told us states must avoid arbitrary and disparate treatment of the electorate. With regard to the issue before the court, with the ongoing Florida recount, the Supreme Court held that even a statewide standard of voter intent was insufficient to satisfy these equal protection guarantees, that the, state, that the recount violated equal protection due to the absence of specific standards that election officials would apply across the board to ensure equal application of that voter intent standard. And so, as you remember, the court held that because you could have election officials not only in different counties, but in some cases at different tables within the same counting room, treating ballots that looked the same differently, depending on how the, how the chad was hanging, the Supreme Court held this was giving different levels of protection to different members of the electorate, and that violated equal protection. Now, the court also famously said in Bush v. Gore, quote, our ruling is limited to the present circumstances which then triggered certainly a, a substantial amount of academic debate over whether Bush v. Gore would actually act as a precedent for future cases, actually did create new equal protection requirements for election administration. With the benefit of just about 20 years of subsequent case law now, we can confidently say yes, Bush v. Gore actually has been fruitful, actually has led to new constitutional requirements concerning the administration of elections and has limited states' ability to devolve authority, to devolve discretion to county and local officials with regard to uh, elections that span multiple jurisdictions, so primarily statewide elections, but certainly many of these, many of these uh, holdings would apply similarly to congressional district elections, anything where you're spanning more than one municipality more than one county. So some of the major applications that we've seen of, of the Bush v. Gore's uniformity principles, most basically with regard to the choice of voting machines, many states gave the Secretary of State discretion to certify different types of voting machines as satisfying statutory requirements. And so secretaries of state could certify 
punch card machines, could certify optical scan machines, could certify DRE touchscreen machines, even though these machines had different error rates, even though these machines resulted in different numbers of spoiled ballots, and some lower courts, excuse me, some district courts, as well as some circuit panel rulings, although the circuit rulings were, were vacated on bonk, held that this violated equal protection principles, that the devolution of authority from the Secretary of State to county officials, giving them that discretion to choose among voting machines that had vast, that had substantially disparate error rates, that had substantially disparate vote rejection rates, violated equal protection. It gave voters in some counties a materially greater chance of having their vote counted than voters in other counties. But we also saw this principle applied in uh, district courts with regard to differences in election procedures. So in a case called Pierce versus Allegheny County Board of Elections out of the Western District of Pennsylvania, the district court held that there was an ambiguity in Pennsylvania state law, that it appeared that state law allowed local election officials to decide which of three different sets of requirements to apply to third parties who were transporting absentee ballots. So someone other than the voter who was bringing the abs an absentee ballot from the voter back to election officials. And the court went on to hold, if we're interpreting, if, if we're interpreting state law correctly, if there really are three different sets of procedures that local election officials are free to choose among, this means that voters in some jurisdictions, voters in some counties, will find it easier to cast their absentee ballots than voters in other counties. And the court concluded this disparity in the opportunity to cast a vote, to have it counted, this disparity violated Bush v. Gore's uniformity requirements. In another case, Mullins versus Cole out of the Southern District of West Virginia, a one county clerk refused to accept electronic signatures. If you tried to register to vote online, that county clerk would send you a written application and say you have to sign this application and return it in order for your registration to count as valid, whereas other county clerks didn't require that paper signature. They would accept an electronic signature. The district court held that violates equal protection, that because it was easier in to register to vote in some counties than others, that that local official exercising discretion to treat electronic signatures as invalid, that violated equal protection principles. <clears throat> Bush v. Gore's uniformity requirement has also been applied in the context of disparities among polling place resources. The most famous case along these lines out of the Sixth Circuit, League of Women Voters versus Bruner, where, this, where the Sixth Circuit held it violated the Equal Protection Clause for different counties within the state to allocate different levels of resources to their polling places. In particular, the court said there were different ratios of voting machines to voters, depending on what county you looked at, and so therefore you had materially longer lines. In some cases, in certain counties, voters would wait as late as four in the morning in order to be able to vote in person. This disparity in resources, this disparity in voter-to-voter -voter machine ratios, the court concluded, violated the Equal Protection Clause because you are advantaging certain voters, you're making it easier to vote in certain places, and so you're giving, their, you're giving them an advantage that other voters lack. This past federal election cycle in 2018, we've more, most recently seen the Bush v. Gore uniformity principle applied in the context of signature match, 
the notion that requiring election officials to match signatures on absentee ballots to signatures on election records raised a risk of the same type of disuniform standards, the same types of inconsistencies that arose. And actually, one of these cases arose in Florida. Again, my home state, great place to do election law, or teach, especially teach election law. And so, again, the court, emphasizing these equal protection principles, said that because there was insufficient guidance to cabin local election officials' discretion, allowing signature match as a requirement for absentee ballots raised or, and provisional ballots raised a serious risk of equal protection violations. Now, beyond the immediate issue of uniformity of election regulations and limiting the ability of states to devolve discretion to, to uh, county and local officials, there are two other major consequences of Bush v. Gore that have, that, that have gotten even less recognition that in my remaining time I just want to bring to your attention. The first is that several courts have, looked, have construed Bush v. Gore's uniformity requirement as impacting their ability to grant relief in constitutional challenges concerning voting rights. That some courts have held that it would be an equal protection violation to afford only the voters before them relief against an allegedly unconstitutional requirement, that either the allegedly unconstitutional requirement would have to be invalidated as to everyone within the jurisdiction or no one, that simply giving relief just to the voters before the court would itself raise equal protection concerns. For those of you who have been following the debates over nationwide injunctions, that type of reasoning has applicability even in the context of statewide injunctions. May a court go beyond the immediate parties to the case to give relief to third-party non-litigants who were not before the court, and what some courts are suggesting is Bush v. Gore's uniformity requirement affirmatively requires them to do so. And yet again, one of the, one of the cases uh, raising this concern, Friedman v. Friedman v. Snipes, arises in, you guessed it, Florida. Finally, one, one final point I want, to, I want to raise in conclusion is that the possibility of tension between Bush v. Gore's uniformity requirement requiring equal treatment of voters and Katzenbach v. Morgan's conception of equal protection in the realm of voting rights. Katzenbach v. Morgan upheld the constitutionality of Section 4E of the Voting Rights Act, and it rejected an equal protection challenge to, to that provision it prohibited states from applying literacy requirements to individuals who had been raised in Puerto Rico in Spanish-speaking schools through the sixth grade. So literacy requirements at the time were seen as constitutionally and statutorily permitted. However, states were not permitted to apply them to this one group of people. And the Supreme Court in Katzenbach said, as long as you are expanding voting rights, as long as you are making it easier for some group to vote, we're only going to apply rational basis scrutiny, and there's not an equal protection problem. So the fact that there might be other people who, were, who grew up in other foreign countries, the fact that there might be other people in the jurisdiction who were illiterate, doesn't raise equal protection concerns. The state may proceed one step at a time, singling out certain groups for extra protection of their voting rights. I would suggest Bush v. Gore's concern for equal treatment of voters calls into question that holding, calls into question the notion that states may carve out certain rights, certain special protections for particular groups of voters. And in fact, this issue has come to a head in the past few years 
It, we've seen it in the Sixth Circuit in Obama for America v. Husted, where the Sixth Circuit held Ohio could not extend special, a, a special three-day opportunity for military voters to vote in person, that it had to be all or nothing. We've seen the Seventh Circuit come to the opposite conclusion, saying the state may allow certain people to vote absentee, may allow excuse-based absentee voting just for people who fell within certain criteria and not extended similarly to other voters. So I would suggest beyond limiting the power of states to devolve discretion, beyond requiring greater uniformity among states with regard to election administration, that we're also going to see substantial changes with regard to court's remedial authority, as well as with regard to the traditional Katzenbach principle. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jason Korczynski. He's a partner uh, at the firm of Holtzman, Fogel, Josefiak, Torczynski, PLLC, and he specializes in campaign finance, election law, lobbying, disclosure, and issue advocacy groups. He has filed numerous briefs before the amicus briefs before the Supreme Court and has been cited there. Um, he also serves as, the, as an adjunct professor at the College of William and Mary School of Law, where he teaches about the IRS and political campaigns. Prior to joining the firm, uh, Jason was counsel to the Assistant AG for Civil Rights uh, at the, uh, uh, for the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. Uh, he holds his uh, two degrees and his law degree from uh, the College of William and Mary uh, in Virginia. So please, Jason. All right, thank you. So I decided to, with the assistance of my associate, Dennis Polio, we decided to look at redistricting commissions and how they play in this sort of growth of the administrative state. Uh, we go to the next slide. Um, so redistricting is a subject that's, that's sort of only revisited by most people about once a decade. And it's done every 10 years because of equal protection of voters, as Professor Morley talked about. And what happens is basically in, in the 1960s, a case came up to the Supreme Court and districts were badly malapportioned. And the Supreme Court said, you know what, that violates equal protection. So a lot of times prior to the 1960s, you don't see a lot of these cases because you didn't have sort of regularly mandated national redistricting. But now it has to be done after every census. And the idea was, you know, if you think about a time when we were a more agrarian economy, if you think about a state that was shaped like a square and there were 25 people living in each quadrant, there was equal, equal distribution of voters with the growth of cities. Now you might have a quadrant with 80 people and a quadrant with five and a quadrant with five and a quadrant with 10. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. So that's why this is done every 10 years. Traditionally, this really has been a function of the state legislatures across the country. Um, and that is whatever the state's traditional legislative process is. Um, there's a few exceptions to that, like North Carolina doesn't involve the governor in passing lines. The legislature can do it without the governor. But generally, historically, it has been a traditional legislative function, passes both houses of the legislature, and gets presented to the governor. Uh, more recently, um, starting in about two, in mid-2000s, maybe into, into the post-2010 cycle, uh, we have seen a, a trend towards progressives unhappy with the traditional method pushing to shift the legislative districting process and the congressional districting process from the legislatures over to commissions. Um, I have some concerns with the commissions, but I want to talk about sort of what my concerns are and explain what the types of commissions are and how they work. Um, a lot of folks 
make the argument that commissions are going to, quote, take political considerations out of redistricting. Uh, in my view, what's happening really is these commissions are just shifting the politics from one venue to another. And I think you see that when you start to examine the structures of these various commissions um, and you see how the politics um, are shifting. So the types of commissions that are out there vary across the state. And there's, I mean, everybody says redistricting commission, but do not assume that redistricting commissions are at all uniform uh, in, their, in their structure, in their application, in their purpose, in the types of maps they're going to produce. The states are all over the place. Um, and there's really kind of three types of commissions when you consider the membership of the commissions. And we, can we go to the next slide? Oh, I have the clicker. Perfect. Um, so the first is membership and composition. Um, some states, when they have redistricting commissions, it's a commission of actual elected politicians. So, for example, there's a number of states where we see commissions that are the majority and minority leaders at the state house and state senate, and the four of them have to come up with a map, and it's got to be by majority vote which sort of requires that at least one member of the other party buy in or the map doesn't pass. And then there are typically some sort of backup, either a tiebreaker who gets appointed or some other process to come up with a map if that initial commission can't. Um, another type of commission that we see is what I call the, the politician-appointed commission. The majority and minority leaders of each house of the state, of the state legislature choose a certain number of people to serve on a commission, and the governor might choose one or more people to serve on the commission. So you have politician-appointed commissions that sometimes have a primary role, sometimes they have a backup role. Usually there's an odd number. Um, and so there's a number of states that have adopted these politician-appointed commissions. Then there's other states that have kind of selection methods that are disconnected from elected officials um, in one way or another. So for example, I'll just use Arizona as an example. Uh, in Arizona, the commission members are nominated by, the state has a, a commission on judicial appointments, uh, a commission on judicial appellate appointments. That commission, even though it's really designed to pick judges, gets to pick the members of the Arizona commission. Uh, there are some strikes involved for certain members of the state legislature who can strike people that are nominated by the commission, but essentially the commission that is somewhat insulated from politics. I think it's composed primarily of retired judges, although they're named by the governor, and there's all sorts of, of gaming that goes into who serves on that commission. If it's a more conservative governor, they might want certain kinds of people on that commission. If it's a more liberal governor, they might want other kinds of people on that commission. Uh, and so you can see how even in Arizona, where it's disconnected from the politicians, you still have the gaming of the process with everybody playing politics about who sits on that commission. So just the selection of commissioners itself there's lots of different methods and there's lots of different ways that politics come into play. Um, the responsibilities of the commissioners also vary. In some places where they have these commissions, they're primarily responsible for drawing. In a number of places, these commissions are set up as kind of the backup methodology. Uh, and when I say the backup methodology, here's basically what happens. If you don't redistrict and you have to redistrict because your population has moved around or shifted, and this happens in every, particularly in the state legislatures uh, and in Congress, in every state they have to redistrict because the districts are just too malapportioned one way or another. If the state's processes don't come up with a map, people will be running to court. Whether it's state court or federal court, um, somebody will run to a court and ask a court to draw a map. Uh, courts generally don't like to draw maps, so there's usually some sort of methodology um, in the state to, to allow for this. So 
for example, these commissions, sometimes they have the primary responsibility for drawing. Some states provide that if the traditional legislative process doesn't work, whatever the commission structure is, um, is has the sort of backup responsibility for drawing if, if the traditional process doesn't come up with one. Um, some of the other structure things to look at are the size of these commissions. Sometimes they're as small as four people. Sometimes they're as big as 23 or 24 people. Um, sometimes there are requirements about there needs to be a certain number of, and they typically don't expressly identify the Republican or Democratic parties, but they'll say no more than X number of representatives um, of the party that represents the majority in the legislature and no more than X number that represents the minority of the party in the legislature. Sometimes there's a requirement that there be one or more people not affiliated or associated with either political party on the commission. Um, so as you can imagine, sometimes even the composition of the commission uh, can vary a lot. The other thing you'll see is in some states, there needs to be, if you've got these categories, let's call it the Democratic commissioners, Republican commissioners, independent commissioners, some states have essentially a supermajority requirement. So you have to have a majority of each subgroup agree or they can't pass a map. It's sort of an anti-majoritarian check that is built, built into some of these commissions. Um, and sometimes you see uh, some membership restrictions. For example, in California, if you have given a certain amount of money in political contributions over a certain period of time leading up to the selection for the commission, you won't be able to serve on the commission. Um, in full disclosure, I'm representing a case right now in Michigan uh, looking that where it looks back uh, six years, and if you have been even a precinct committee man for your political party, you may not serve on the commission if you've been a party's precinct committee member in the last six years. And not only that, your spouse, parent, child, stepchildren also can't serve if you've been a precinct committee man. Um, so they, there are some membership restrictions in some of these commissions. Uh, they vary. Uh, Michigan's are probably the most restrictive uh, if you look around the country. Um, some of the other structural things to consider when you're looking at these commissions is how, how if, it, if in any way, can politically elected representatives remove commissioners? Or can the commission itself remove commissioners for one reason or another, short of death or resignation? Uh, and as you can imagine, just like with everything else with these commissions, they vary across the spectrum. Uh, there was a relatively famous or, or infamous uh, move by Governor Brewer in Arizona a few years ago to remove the chair of the commission. Uh, that case went all the way to the Arizona Supreme Court, and the Arizona Supreme Court basically said, you can't remove the, uh, the commission member on these grounds. Um, so a governor attempted to remove a commissioner, and it failed. Um, there were a couple of instances, I think, in California where disqualification, where certain information came to light about certain people serving on the commission, that if that information had been provided to the state selection process, um, during the selection process, one or more commissioners would have been disqualified, but because that information didn't come to light after they were serving on the commission, there was functionally no removal clause um, and no way to remove these commissioners once they're there. Um, the other thing that, you, that concerns me as a, as a practitioner in this area is the availability of judicial review. In some places, there is, in some of these commissions, there is a methodology for judicial review of their actions or decisions or their resulting map, uh, and in other cases, there's not. Um, and just quickly, I want to go through, um, in our paper, um, we sort of go through and apply a framework and look at some of the commissions that sort of have accountability and don't. 
Um, some of the ones that really don't lack accountability to, the, to elected officials are really Michigan, California, and Arizona for some of the reasons that I described. Um, some of the ones that have some more accountability um, are New Jersey, sorry, are, are New Jersey and Washington State uh, because of the structures of their commissions. Um, and some of the ones that are sort of most accountable are, there we go, uh, Arkansas, Pennsylvania. Uh, in Arkansas, it's elected officials that serve on commissions. In Pennsylvania, they use for their state legislature, they use the four-member commission that I mentioned with the state house and state senate. Uh, Mississippi and Oklahoma have the backup commissions. Uh, and Iowa has a, a unique process where they do use some, some computer-generated maps, and the legislature can either approve or disapprove uh, the maps that come out of the process. So that is sort of my spiel on the commission structures. I think Professor Fieldays is going to talk about how these commissions actually go about their work. But I'll turn it over to Andrew to shift it over. Rounding, rounding out our panel is Professor Richard Hildes. He's the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University School of Law, and he's an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Law Institute, and is also a Guggenheim and Carnegie Fellow. He's one of the country's leading experts on legal issues concerning American democracy and the structure of American government, including voting rights, elections, redistricting, the Voting Rights Act, campaign finance, constitutional law more generally. Uh, he was a law clerk to Justice Thurgood Marshall. He has argued before the Supreme Court successfully. Um, and please, Professor Pildes, take it away. Thank you. <coughs> I was here for the first panel where all the panelists spoke from up here. So I decided I would speak from up here in part because I like to see your faces when I'm speaking so I can read whether you are confused or outraged or pleased uh, at various points, uh, and sometimes I can respond to your cues uh, as I speak. Um, so I wanted to speak on issues that are closely related to the, the two previous um, comments. Uh, first, what I want to do is give you an appreciation or an awareness of how much of an outlier the United States is when it comes to our failure to use various kinds of non-political institutions to oversee and administer various aspects of our electoral and political process, including uh, the redistricting process that Jason was talking about. Um, and second, I want to then speculate a little bit or encourage all of us to speculate about exactly why it is that the United States is such an outlier in this respect among the major democracies. Um, so let me remind you just a, a bit about some of the odd situations presented by the way we structure the administration of elections in the United States. Uh, in the 2018 election, you may recall this significant dispute uh, out of Georgia, uh, where the elected secretary of state was running for governor and issued a controversial ruling as secretary of state uh, which affected about 50,000-some registrations that under this ruling were held to be not valid registrations. Now, whether that ruling is correct or not as a legal matter, it will obviously be impossible for those on the losing side of a ruling like that 
uh, to accept it as a legitimate decision based on appropriate considerations uh, when the Secretary of State is himself the candidate running for office who is benefited by this kind of ruling. Or if we think back to Bush v. Gore, or for those of you who are too young to remember it, uh, a little reminder or a little lesson about the dynamics of Bush v. Gore, uh, when we get into a disputed presidential election context like that, here are the kind of institutions that are available or in play for resolving it. First of all, the two chief election administrators in Florida, the Secretary of State and the Attorney General, uh, were each, respectively, the head of the Bush campaign in Florida, that was the Secretary of State, and the head of the Gore campaign in Florida, the elected Attorney General. Uh, moreover, we have complete confusion about whether disputes over this election are to be resolved in the state courts, the federal courts, some combination of the two, or possibly even in Congress, ultimately. In addition, when we went into a recount process, these county canvassing boards, which did the recounts in Florida, were elected partisan boards. And not surprisingly, in certain counties, they were recovering votes at higher rates for their preferred candidate um, than in other counties. It's impossible to generate broad public acceptance of the legitimacy of these kinds of difficult and contested election issues in a system in which partisan elected officials who have the most direct and immediate self-interest at stake are the ones making the decisions. Now, when you look at the rest of the democracies uh, in the world, and certainly the ones closest to ours, um, on the specific issue of redistricting, for example, there is no other liberal democracy which uses districted or territorial districts for elections that puts the power to draw those districts in the hands of the most obviously self-interested political actors, the state legislatures, uh, who of course are going to have tremendous temptations, at the least, to protect their seats, to protect the seats of their allies, to protect their partisan uh, affiliates if they have the power to do that. Uh, so let me just um, tell you that here's a list of all the Commonwealth countries that use independent commissions to district. Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, and the rest. And it's not just the Commonwealth countries. Germany, Mexico, France, Ireland, Japan, Every single one of these countries, for some reason, has come to the view that the use of commissions of some sort to draw districts is a better system in a democracy than to have that power in the hands of self-interested political actors. They also have much less in the way of litigation in the aftermath of the plans drawn by these commissions. Um, and part of what Michael talked about and also Jason's discussion one of the reasons we have so much litigation over election-related matters is precisely because we don't have institutions that can be trusted broadly uh, for reaching these decisions, primarily because they are elected through partisan elections, uh, and the losing side finds it very hard to accept that the decisions are being made on the basis of legitimate considerations uh, rather than self-interested and partisan considerations. 
Um, now, it's interesting to me, many of these countries that I mentioned um, were not born with independent commissions as the way they structured the process of drawing districts. This is actually something that has developed in the more recent history of these countries, uh, starting with the UK, which after World War II created what's called the Independent Boundary Commission uh, in the UK. Uh, but countries like Canada only adopted commissions in the mid-90s. France, it wasn't until 2010. Um, so as I say, it's not as if these countries were, were born with these kinds of institutions. Uh, they made a conscious decision at a certain point in time to move in that direction. Uh, these commissions typically use nonpartisan government officials or judges or academics. Uh, sometimes they receive their positions ex officio because of the office they hold or by appointment. Um, in some countries, their decisions are actually final. Whatever the commissions decide actually becomes the redistricting plan. Um, in some countries, they require legislative approval. Uh, after the plans are adopted, uh, Canada, the, US, the UK, France, for example. Uh, but even when legislative approval is required, it's typically given to the plans drawn by these commissions. Um, so we are really very much of a democratic outlier in the way we design our election districts through these political processes. Now, if you open the lens further from redistricting to election administration more broadly, um, it's also true that many, many major democracies use uh, various kinds of independent institutions. They are typically electoral courts, they're called. Um, they are a branch of the judicial system, uh, which has jurisdiction only over electoral matters. Uh, they are appointed judges. They, have, they develop expertise on election issues. Um, and part of the idea is that there is a pre-existing structure for resolving various issues about electoral governance, including resolving disputed elections with its own rule structure. Uh, it's insulated from the regular judicial process in part to keep any partisan disputes about these matters from kind of infecting the larger court system. Um, and so in contrast with Bush v. Gore, when these systems face what are some of the most potentially destabilizing issues for any democracy, which is a disputed election for the chief executive of the country, whether power is going to be turned over from those who currently control the military, the government, and the resources of a country to their bitter opponents, and there is a dispute about the validity of the election, um, in these systems that have pre-existing electoral courts to resolve these issues, um, they have succeeded in generating fairly stable and broadly accepted outcomes. And the most prominent example of this, uh, if you remember in Mexico in 2006, they had their Bush v. Gore moment. Uh, the party that had been basically running Mexico for decades uh, was defeated at the polls. Uh, but the president claimed fraud. Uh, he was mobilizing his supporters in the streets. Um, and this independent electoral court then was faced with the issue of resolving the claims of fraud. Uh, they recounted tens of thousands of ballots. They rejected the claims. Uh, and though the president, Obrador, tried to keep mobilizing people in the streets, after the electoral court ruled that the election was legitimate, it took the wind out of those protests. Power was peacefully transferred uh, to his opponent. 
Um, and uh, that was, I think, a very good moment uh, for these um, electoral courts. Um, okay, that just hopefully gives you a tiny bit of perspective. So now the question is, well, why? Why are we such an outlier in this respect? Um, and here I'm only able to offer you some speculations. Um, I'll start with uh, the first idea you often hear, which is um, Jason kind of expressed it. Um, I think this idea is actually not a particularly deep one in understanding this issue for reasons I'll explain. But in the United States, whenever I give talks on this issue, the first thing people say, uh, in a sense that, that seems to them to be very sophisticated, is, well, who's gonna, how do you ensure independence? Um, how can you get impartial administration? Um, where's neutrality? There's always politics. Um, and the first question I want to ask is, why does that happen so much in the United States, but not in these other democracies? It's a very interesting question. Now, I think this is actually a somewhat superficial initial uh, response because of two things. One is no one pretends that these commissions aren't going to be making substantive choices at some point. So the idea is not some utopian vision of pure neutrality with no hard substantive choices to be made. The question is whether these kinds of institutions provide relatively greater independence than politically self-interested actors, relatively greater uh, capacity to be motivated by considerations other than the most immediate, narrow self-interest about my political career and that of my partisan allies? Is this a better, not perfect, but better way of designing districts um, than putting it in the hands of uh, politicians? The second thing you often hear from Americans is, well, I, because I don't trust that these will really be independent uh, institutions, it's much better that we have electoral control over who these people are. I, I can vote out a legislature, uh, but I can't vote out a commission. Um, but I think this is quite an illusion because at the end of the day, voters don't vote over how decisions are made about things like how election districts are designed or a lot of political process issues. You, you have candidates, they're a bundle of positions, they, um, uh, stand for. Uh, these things are second order issues. They're process issues. They're very remote, ultimately, for most voters from questions about taxes or economic policy or health care or whatever the first order issues are. Uh, and the idea that we're actually exercising control over how legislatures draw districts when we go to vote 10 years later after a plan has been put in place for a decade, I, I think is quite um, self-deceiving. Um, now, I think that there is something deep in American political culture uh, going back probably to the Jacksonian era uh, in the way we developed our understanding of what democratic self-government means, what popular sovereignty means, uh, the era that destroyed the independent national bank uh, for exactly these cultural reasons. Uh, leading to a 19th century in which the U.S. had many more economic recessions uh, than countries that did have central banks like the U.K. until we finally managed to recreate 
independent central banking with the Federal Reserve uh, in the early 20th century. I actually doubt we'd be able to create the Federal Reserve today if the issue were being faced for the first time, uh, because part of what's happened with our hyperpolarized political culture is it's made it even harder to generate support or belief in the possibility of improving the democratic process through the use of institutions that do administration of elections that are at one remove from first order, direct, self-interested political kinds of motivations um, and interests. Uh, so I guess that makes me a bit of an outlier uh, on this panel. Um, but since that's my theme, that's happy to be in that position. So thank you. So before we go to audience questions, I would just like Professor Morley um, and Jason Torchinsky to maybe, if they have any comments on, you know, their sort of superficial instincts about democratic legitimacy in the elections or any rejoinders, and we can have some dialogue here back and forth. Sure. I mean, America has a long, long, long history of dealing with districting lines. Uh, if you go back to around the time of the American <coughs> Revolution, Patrick Henry actually tried, when he was sitting in Richmond, tried to draw a congressional district that he didn't think James Madison could win. Uh, and James Madison came back and, and won in the district that Patrick Henry designed so that he wouldn't win, but he won anyway. And, and we all know the history of James Madison in Congress. Um, so I, I guess my point is politically accountable actors drawing maps has a long tradition in America. And this, this notion that some somehow will fix our politics if we just had, you know, some unaccountable bureaucracy draw the maps, life will become a lot better, I think is, is a, a lot of smoke and mirrors from the progressive left that seems to be pushing for this as a solution to the problem of polarized politics. I, th I think there's a, there are a few different perspectives to, to look at the issue from. One, building a little bit on what, on what Jason said, I think that there's a pervasive tendency in, a, in our system to say certain issues are above politics, they're too important for politics, that consigning issues to or allowing issues to be left to the politicians, the elected officials, is seen, is seen as a bad thing. And for a democracy, that strikes me as a very problematic position, that I'm, I'm very skeptical of the notion that we can, we can divide the population into the politically active and the politically neutral, and that we can trust these politically neutral decision makers to come up with the right decision. When it, comes to, when it comes to redistricting, one of the main considerations, one of the main traditional redistricting criteria is pervasively political. It's about communities of interest. It's about which constituencies should stay together, which constituencies share common interests. And it seems to me that this is not something where you can have objectively neutral experts coming in and trying, trying to make these decisions, that there's unavoidably subjective, normative, pervasive value judgments of a type that doesn't, or at least are, is different from the traditional notions of administrative expertise and bureaucracy, right? Sort of technocratic, scientific type principles. That's not, that's not what's going on in, in these decisions. The one final uh, you know, controversial thing I'll, I'll, I'll throw out there is, at least with regard to congressional redistricting, I would argue that under the Constitution, it's actually unconstitutional for a state 
to strip the legislature of its authority to prevent the legislature from engaging in redistricting precisely because the elections clause of the Constitution pierces the veil of statehood, so to speak. It doesn't say states may regulate congressional elections. It specifically says the legislature of the state shall determine the time, place, and manner of elections. And so for a state constitution or some other state measure to try to impose substantive restrictions on the scope of that authority, I think violates the elections clause. The Supreme Court's 2015 ruling in Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission came down the other way on that, but that was 5-4 and written by Justice Kennedy, so we will see how long that, that stays in place. So uh, first, um, let, let's talk about some of the states that have actually adopted independent redistricting commissions. Um, Jason mentioned Arizona. In 2018, there were four states that had measures on the ballot to adopt independent redistricting commissions. Uh, this included the blue progressive state of Utah. Uh, it included the progressive bastion of Missouri. Uh, it included uh, states that are more evenly divided, like Michigan, Colorado. So the idea that, at least when voters in states that have direct democracy are given the opportunity to vote on these measures, this is some kind of agenda of the progressive left is, is certainly not borne out by actual voting behavior. In fact, if you look at public opinion surveys, probably the number one issue people point to as evidence of how rigged American democracy is when people are, you know, people who believe the system is rigged, redistricting is number one in people's minds. People divide on campaign finance. They have you know, different views on various issues. But broadly, most people think, as they learn more about this, as they see more coverage of this, um, that this cannot be an appropriate way in a democratic system uh, to design the basic units from which people uh, are elected. Um, and by the way, on the accountability issue, um, we know that if state legislatures are clever enough uh, and have unified party control, uh, they can design the districts so that even if the voters who are opposed to them want to vote them out because of what they've done with redistricting, which is not a major motivation for voting, they couldn't do it unless they're able to capture 60-some percent of the vote in some places because the very way the districts are rigged requires that kind of majority in order to change uh, the situation. Um, secondly, um, Michael brings up a, a, an interesting point, which is when we talk about, uh, when I talk about, think about why the US finds it so hard to use the kind of independent institutions, not just for election matters, but for certain other uh, matters as well that are common in other democracies, um, the US Constitution itself may play a role here. So with respect to national institutions, as you undoubtedly know, uh, the very question of whether we can have independent regulatory institutions uh, or whether they must all be subject to the direct plenary control of the president is itself a highly contested constitutional question about Article II. Uh, and it may be that one reading of Article II uh, in which it is simply unconstitutional to create independent agencies at the national level will prevail in the Supreme Court. Uh, so our Constitution 
would stand in the way of independent institutions at the national level. Now, the point Michael brings up is another example. So there is a debate about whether states, now we're talking about states, can create independent institutions to regulate elections for the House or the Senate or presidential electors. They have the power generally to regulate in that area under what's called the Elections Clause. Um, and under the dissenting views of Chief Justice Roberts in the Arizona redistricting case uh, that Michael mentioned, it's not even constitutional for states to create independent commissions to regulate the electoral process, at least with respect to national elections. Now, you know, personally, I think that's a, a completely bizarre reading of the Constitution. I mean, I have a great deal of respect for Chief Justice Roberts, um, but I think that when the Constitution was written and the power to regulate elections for national office was given to the state legislatures, that wasn't because there was a debate about whether it should be given to state legislatures or commissions of one sort or another. The debate was, is this something courts should do? Is this something the executive branch should do? Is this something the lawmaking power, the legislature, the state should do? And in states which have chosen to have direct democracy as a part of their lawmaking process, it seems to me a, a much better reading of the Constitution to say that that's where the power was granted to the lawmaking, pro pro lawmaking process of the state, which the state has power to define for itself. Uh, the, the notion that you read that word legislature completely out of any sort of historical context and pretend the framers rejected the idea of independent commissions uh, if voters in a state want those seems to me wrongheaded. But it's interesting that this is another area where the Constitution itself understood in certain ways might stand in the way of our ability to create the kind of independent oversight institutions uh, and force us uh, to have the most self-interested political actors in charge with this. And if you wonder why people think the system is rigged, I think it's not much of a surprise uh, when, when that's where the power to control these kind of processes lies. I guess my, my reaction to that is, I think it's nice to throw around the word rigged. It's easy to say gerrymandering is bad. But when you actually talk to people and get them to understand what's happening, and you look at how these past these past pronouncements that you know things just can't change under these maps, it's kind of laughable. The courts get it wrong all the time, as do predictors of what's happening in political trends in the future. Um, in 2010, Republicans did very well nationally across you know up and down the ballot, and wound up taking over a whole lot of state legislative houses in maps that have been drawn by Democrats in 2000, because Democrats controlled the vast majority of state legislative chambers in 2000. If you look at what just recently happened in California, for example, this commission that's supposed to be the panacea, right, and it, it appears that the goal of a lot of the people behind these commissions, they want the the legislative body to reflect something like the statewide voting strength that they calculate for the political party, well, you know, in this great panacea that we have in the California Commission, Republicans now hold seven of the 53 seats or 54 seats in California, and sorry, 50 some odd seats in California. So I think it comes out to Republicans holding about 13% of the seats in California when statewide Republicans get about 40% of the vote. So even this great, you know, progressive panacea of the California Commission that was supposed to come up with these maps that are going to be fair 
resulted in a map that holds that has Republicans holding 13% of the seats, yet receiving 40% of the vote on a statewide basis. So I guess what I'm saying is a lot of predictions about what's going to happen in the future really are, are tough. Um, every time the courts have been confronted with these, they've got it wrong. Um, if you go back to, there was a case out of um, Pennsylvania in, in the mid-2000s called V. Democrats went in and said we could never take a majority of the, uh, of the congressional delegation in Pennsylvania. It could never happen. Guess what? Next election after the court rejected the challenge, Democrats took over a majority of the or the majority of the congressional seats in Pennsylvania. Going back even further, the original partisan gerrymandering case in federal court was a case called Bandemir. This was a Democrat challenge to a Republican-drawn map in the Indiana House. Uh, the election after it was rejected by the, the challenge was rejected by the Supreme Court, Democrats tied for the Indiana House, and the next election under the same map that they said they could never take a majority under, Democrats took a majority of the Indiana House. So predictions about how voters are going to vote in the future and how these maps are going to, you know, be impervious to voters have been proven wrong over and over and over. Can I respond to that first very briefly? So there are a lot of hard arguments about partisan gerrymandering and whether the court should do anything about it. I was involved in litigation uh, last term challenging the congressional maps from North Carolina, uh, where Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion for the court holding that this is a non-justiciable issue. Um, and even though I was on the other side of that, I, I acknowledge that there are a lot of very difficult issues for courts about this problem. Um, the one argument I find completely unpersuasive, though, which Justice Scalia introduced into this, into this discussion in his opinion in Veek, and Chief Justice Roberts alludes to it a little bit, is exactly the argument that Jason just made. So if you think it is so unpredictable how voters are going to vote, and that the way districts are drawn um, does not have a tremendous outcome on the people who get elected, then you have to explain to me why political parties spend millions of dollars trying to gain control of the state legislature and the state governor's office on the, in the elections leading up to redistricting, why they spend millions of dollars hiring experts to draw these maps, uh, why they defend them so aggressively in court. Um, and I'm enough of an economist to believe that you know, what you look at is people's behavior, and the behavior reveals a lot of information. And everybody involved in this system sure believes it's worth spending huge resources to try to control the redistricting process, because they certainly all believe that while they can't get it 100% right all the time and over an entire decade, there's a heck of a lot of political power that they can accurately predict uh, will be controlled by the way districts are drawn. So uh, and I, I just think it's, it's really hard to accept the other position, whatever your other views on the rest of these issues are. Of course it matters. If I could, if I could flip that then and ask the other question, I mean, assuming that there is some room here for sort of neutral administration, so much of what we do here at the center comes down to this exact same debate, which is questions of an independent bureaucracy that has certain values of expertise and a, and a culture and a continuity uh, that is an independent source of law and legitimacy and authority. And so I guess my question for each of you is, uh, what, do, what would it look like? And the answer might be, there is no, nothing unique here, but what would it look like? What is the unique 
sort of expertise that an election, a, a, a neutral election administrator might have? Is it something about their ability to look at social stability and say, I need to do what I can to ratify electoral outcomes, and, they're, and they've got some better sense of like the political stability? Is it that they're vindicating ideal votes and they're just better mathematicians or whatever? What, what is it that would make an electoral official more neutral, more independent, more accurate? What, what's, and, and a part of that is what's the normative, what are we normatively trying to, to vindicate here? I think that at least when it comes to administration of elections, going back to Professor Morley's papers, um, I think that some expertise and experience in dealing with complex systems is important for for voting. Um, I'll, I'll use Florida as an example. Um, Florida has 67, 67 counties, right? 67 counties. 66 of the 67 counties elect their election supervisors. The only one that does not is Miami-Dade, which is the biggest county in the state. The supervisor in Miami-Dade is, is picked by the county commission, which is, again, you know, politically obviously elected, but, but is hired as an as a essentially professional nonpartisan administrator. Of all, of, If you think back to what happened in 2018, where, where I was involved in, in representing Senator Scott, um, in the 2018 election, the next two biggest counties in the state, Palm Beach and Broward, were the ones that had all kinds of administration problems. The one that went probably the, the largest county that went the smoothest in the entire state in the recount and, and sort of ascertainment of results process was Miami-Dade. So in that case, you really had a professional election administrator who actually administered one of the most complex counties in the state really well. And then you go just a little bit north to the next two most populous counties, and you had professional, you had politically elected supervisors who just couldn't, for some reason, do what Miami-Dade managed to do with a professional in charge of the office. <clears throat> I mean, to, to, to a certain extent, this seems to, to go back to what in legal academia were, were the debates over legal process theory, that can you run government by just coming up with the right government structures and assigning the right types of tasks to the right decision makers. And I guess my, my pervasive skepticism is once the political parties know what the rules are, once the political parties know who the decision makers are going to be, they will figure out a way to game the system that that if anything i would suggest there might it might be worse than the status quo because right now if you have politically self-interested decision makers making baldly self-interested political decisions it's fairly easy to call them out on that it's fairly easy for them to get bad press as a result of that whether or not you think it it, it translates immediately into adverse electoral results they will pay a political price but if you have political parties able to work behind the scenes, if you have political parties who are able to use whatever channels exist, in, or just as, you know, we talk about regulatory capture in the context of administrative agencies, we talk, talk about political influence over administrative agencies, I think similar things would happen in the context of supposedly independent commissions, and to the extent that they have this this, I, I don't want to say cover, but to the extent that officially they are seen as independent, that they come with a presumption of that what they're doing is not politically motivated and above reproach, and perhaps it's even seen as a little bit indelicate to, to, to call into question their, their rationales and, and their motives. I think we might wind up getting at least substantively similar decisions with less ability to actually right, point the finger and put blame where it belongs. 
so in these various ballot measures that were approved in 2018, uh, different states uh, were more specific or not about the substantive criteria that they're telling their commissions to use. So one thing that can be done is specifying in advance, as was done in Missouri, for example, really strict criteria for what priorities are to be given to what considerations in the districting process. Um, you can also uh, insist through legislation or through voter initiative on transparency in the process in various respects, including identifying in advance what the criteria will be and what priorities will be allocated among them. Um, and I just think this, this um, I think it's a characteristic kind of cynicism uh, that uh, it's all going to be captured by the same political forces uh, is self-destructive in many ways for American democracy because it does stand in the way of our ability to create these kinds of institutions, which if we actually look at the results in the places that have had commissions for a while, the data are that plans drawn by commissions tend to have more competitive districts than plans drawn by legislatures controlled by one party. Plans drawn by commissions tend to have fairer partisan outcomes overall in terms of seat vote comparisons. Uh, and there's actually data on the performance of these commissions versus legislatures under the control of one party. Now, it's still early. You know, there hasn't been a huge amount of experience with it. Uh, but I think that's what we ought to look to. Uh, let's see how the ones that exist are, are actually performing. So we'll, we'll go to audience questions, yep. but it was, uh, isn't that kind of cynicism your article with Daryl Levinson in the Harvard Law Review, though? Um, on separation of parties, not powers. Wait, I don't. That things are captured. Is, is things the premise get that I can't be contradictory? Okay. <laughs> no one ever told me that. Um, okay. No, the, my the, my view is that politicians are fundamentally motivated by the desire to be reelected. And I'll tell you, I have had expert witnesses in redistricting cases, social scientists, who will say, you know, the politicians don't want a ninety-nine point nine percent probability of being reelected. When the districts are drawn, they want, if they can get it, what they demand is a 99.9999% probability that they will be reelected. So, I mean, politicians do have a lot of motivations. I don't mean to sound, you know, like they only have this motivation. But if you want to understand how the U.S. Congress is going to behave, the House and the Senate are not going to behave as institutions motivated by the interests of the House or the Senate in the way Madison initially envisioned. The partisan alliances between the White House and the party in power, if it's the same party or the power in opposition, if it's out of power, that's going to determine how these institutions behave. And that's I, I certainly stand by that. Um, I thought that was right when I wrote that 15 years ago, and it sure looks even more true with our politics today. That's why you don't want them in charge of how our basic democratic process works, because we know what their motivations are. So we do have time for a question or two, depending on how. So do we have our, we'll go right there in the back. It looks like one hand is up. Um, and then we will need to oh, break for our case. Thank you. Um, just a quick question for Michael about the sort of prediction of the demise or the imminent demise of the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case, which, like, of course, that's a 5-4 case. Of course, Kennedy um, 
writes it. So the numbers suggest that that could be in question. Don't you think there's some obstacle to that in that the court would have to wrestle with in some of the language in the Chief Justice's opinion in the June decision, finding that you know these challenges present non-justiciable political questions? He says, look, we're not saying that there aren't legitimate objections um, to excessive partisanship and districting. We're not condemning opponents to shout into the void. There's lots of alternatives. Among those alternatives are states can take steps, including creating independent redistricting commissions. Now, maybe that's dicta, but it feels like it's kind of related to the reasoning, which is like maybe an acknowledgement that there's some constitutional interest in a meaningful vote. It's just the courts can't vindicate that interest. And how could the court then turn in the, ma in the next couple of years and eliminate another route to vindicating that interest? So I don't think it, it's just dicta. So I think the court would have to wrestle with that. But you seem kind of confident in your prediction that, that that's on the chopping block. Oh, no, to, to be clear, I am far too pessimistic to call it a prediction. <laughs> Perhaps hope might be, might be a, 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 better, a better phrase. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that certainly that language, which of course the court wasn't purporting to adjudicate the, the, the constitutionality of it, but yes, obviously that language would certainly be cited in, 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 in support of the decision. The, what I would say is the, the, the constitutional problem would arise where you have an independent commission to the exclusion of a legislature. So certainly to the extent that the legislature could override the, the, the commission to the extent if they both acted, the legislature prevailed, that wouldn't raise the same constitutional issues. One quick point I, I want to say on this, right? the elections clause says, right, time, place, and manner of congressional elections is decided by the legislature. Like when we have constitutional debates, right, most of the time we're talking about things, what is due process of law? What is equal protection of the laws, right? We're talking about these broad sweeping provisions that arguably encompass, right, abstract moral principles. If there's one thing in the Constitution, we should know what it means. It's what is the legislature. 11 out of 13 state constitutions of the founding era specifically used the term legislature and defined it. Every other provision in the Constitution talks about the legislature as an entity comprised of multiple members. It periodically goes into recess. It periodically convenes. They take oaths. From a text, not even from an originalist perspective, just from a textualist perspective, this should have been an easy case. The majority, and the Professor Pildes in, in his explanation showed this, the majority took more of a purposivist approach. They said, well, they weren't, didn't have the intent of, of canceling out um, initiatives and referenda. And so therefore, we should construe this in light of the goals and the purposes that the framers had in enacting this clause. I would simply suggest if you go back to those founding era debates, they carefully distinguished between the people and direct action by the people and the types of decisions for which they wanted some intermediating body, whether it be a legislature or the electoral college. So you're right. Even though there weren't initiatives and referenda, the framers still did see value in having an intermediating body like the legislature act as a of, of the saucer, if you will, right, to, to make the analogy of the Senate, into which, right, the passions of the people could be, through which it could be cooled. So uh, we are going to have to break to vindicate your right to one man, one meal. So please <laughs> join me in thanking our panelists.